Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth has been provided by CashFly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. CashFly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, that's C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Gil Hova, and he's a board game designer who happens to have a day job as a programmer, but he really identifies as board game designer. Hi, Gil. Hi, how's it going? It's it's really good. I'm excited to have you on here. I want to know what kind of person designs board games. A very patient person. That's funny because in the pre-show talk, you seem very, um, not impatient, but like always ready to go, like raring to go. Is that just this conversation or are you always like that? Um, it's strange. It, it, there are times when I'm like that and times when I'm not like that. Um, I think I'm like that now because I'm about to go in a virtual sense on stage. Um, but, uh, board game design as it's a contemplative moment, all contemplative moments also, um, you know, the times when you're up against uh, a design dilemma and you have to just figure it out. And, you know, that's a time when you can just, try to take apart this problem that you might have and think and think and think. And then at some point, um, ah, there's the answer. Or maybe you just uh, bounce it off someone else um, and someone else says, well, have you tried doing this? And it, it suddenly that's it. The, the piece just fits in. So, um, you know, there are times when I'm not all excited and happy and hyper. Are there times when you're quiet and happy? Um, I mean, are you, are you, are you, when you're happy, do you get like super excited or does sit, does working on a design problem, working on a, like a puzzle, uh, make you happy and still sedate? Um, I would say, uh, that figuring out a problem definitely makes me happy. Um, and even working on a problem, it occupies me in a way that makes me content. Uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It makes perfect uh, sense. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, There's the old saying that uh, if everybody threw all their problems in a pile and then you came and you had a chance to pull a problem out of the pile, you would probably pull out the problem that you threw in. Um, And uh, I think the the problems that uh, we as a people, you know, uh, deal with, for most people, there are problems that we're comfortable with and problems that we deal with. Now, you know, that's not the case for everyone. I've met plenty of people who have had serious problems thrust upon them. Uh, so maybe there's a little bit of privilege in that statement. But uh, in terms of doing things like um, how you spend your free time and uh, what you and how you like to uh, do things, um, I'll, I'll put it another way. Um, I think uh, moving forward in life and um, improving your life generally is um, a lot of people see it as, oh, if I only I can do this, if I can buy this house, if I can have this kid, my life will be perfect. And um, that's, it's never quite like that. It's more like I'm going to take this set of problems and exchange it for this other set of problems, and I'm going to prefer this new set of problems to my old set of problems. Um, and maybe that's closer to my point, that uh, hopefully as you move forward in life and, um, and try to work to make yourself happier, you never get rid of your problems. You just try to acquire a set of problems that you're the most comfortable with. Well, that and you gain perspective. Yeah, that was a, that was a really philosophical start to the show. <laughs> well, um, <that laughs> well, tell me now how, how this kind of personality and, and the perspective you have now, how does that 
apply to, I think you've been doing this for 13 years, you said? About 13 years, yeah. I started in about 2000, 1999, 2000 is when I seriously started um, working on board game design. So define serious. You've been, uh, you've had at least one published, right? Yeah, I've had one published. I've got another one, uh, the Kickstarter, uh, as of this recording, we're recording on a Monday night and it should be up, uh, hopefully later in the week. Um, and that's not a Kickstarter, Kickstarter I'm personally running. Uh, my publisher, um, who go, uh, Minion Games is the name of the publishing company. Uh, they are working on the Kickstarter and hopefully going to make the game a reality, um, either late this year or early next year. Cool. Um, so random aside, are, is your house like covered in board games? I have a pretty large board game collection. I wouldn't say it's covered in board games, but I have uh, four Ikea shelves um, that are uh, pretty well stuffed with board games. Ikea and with- makes several different size shelves. Define Ikea shelf. Okay, these are the, oh, I, I don't they, even like know the like the floor name. to ceiling one with the six layers on it? Uh, it's not the billy, but it's the one underneath the billy. And, you know, it's about six feet tall um, and about, uh, I'd say, two and a half, three feet wide. And I've got four of them. Okay. Uh, my collection's about 300 games, which is not not a huge collection. It's a decent-sized collection. It's a yeah. respectable collection. I, I beg to differ. <laughs> well, That's freakishly uh, large. I should introduce you to uh, my friends Stephen and Jeff then. Um, uh Steven and Jeff have collections that number probably at least 3,000 each what? at this point. Yes. That, that can't be right. There are not 3,000 board games in the world. There are easily 3,000. There's, there's even more. Board Game Geek is uh, a website that's kind of like the IMDB of board games. Um, and they, have a, they, they, they let you rank games. And there's a community that has built around the site because uh, they did a really good job making the site. And they have a very large database of board games. I'm actually going to go and see how many games they have. Ah, okay. They have 66,000 games in their database. Uh, so, um, uh, like, like 6,000 of those at least have to be pretty much the same game with different colors, right? Not really. No. Um, so, uh, there are, um, a lot, I'd say the scene has really exploded in the past 15 years and now there's, uh, literally hundreds of games coming out every year. Um, A lot of the games come out in Germany. Germany is kind of the mecca of board gaming these days. Uh, That's where a lot of... uh, a lot of designers started really uh, pushing the craft forward. And there's a whole, I would say, aesthetic that comes out of Europe um, and Germany. Uh, we call them Euros. Um, and the Euro aesthetic is uh, what really helped turn uh, turn this into a real movement. Interesting. Um, wow. I'm still, I'm reeling at the number of, uh, number of games on this site. Um mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I, actually, I'm, I'm momentarily speechless. Tell me, <laughs> tell me um, what makes uh, what, what do you put into a game? Like, what's the uh, what's the puzzle? How do you uh, how do you even start? Like, I've I've made a board game when I was in a babysitting class at the Y when I was like 12. <laughs> and we had to make a board game that, that kids would enjoy. And I found it extremely frustrating because I know what I like, but I Mm -hmm. couldn't recreate that. 
it's a frustrating process. It's an iterative process. It's not something that as a designer you get right on your first try or your 10th try or your 50th try. Um, you start out with an idea. Um, a board game generally uh, is, uh, most people view it in two halves. Um, one half is the theme of the board game. Uh, what a lot of people will look at the box cover and say, oh, this is a game about uh, farming in the 16th century. This is a game about the Cold War. This is a game about uh, guiding your civilization through um, uh, through history. Uh, looking at the top three board games on Board Game Geek, those are those their actual themes. Um and then the other half is uh, the mechanisms of the board game, the rules of the game, how the game actually works. And uh, most designers will start with one or the other and then work in the opposite direction. Um, and Though I've seen lately most designers seem to prefer to start with a theme and then adapt mechanisms to go with it. So generally it starts with an idea, wouldn't it be cool if you could do this? And then you start building a game around that. And at some point, you have a proof of concept, something that you have on your table that kind of works pretty well, um, you think, and then you introduce it to other people. And the other people have a terrible time with the game. It's not fun. It takes too long or it's over too quickly. And the decisions are obvious or the decisions are boring. And uh, they just tear your baby apart. So you you pick up the pieces, you figure out what went wrong, and you start uh say, oh, well, if I fix this and change this and this, change this and go back to your friends. And they say, well, this is marginally better but still and you can see how this process goes and you refine it and you refine it or you refine it and maybe after 15 20 plays it's ready for some more people and maybe you get nicer art and now it's starting to resemble something that's kind of fun um so the, the process of making a board game is very very iterative iterative because you're pretty much you've got a formula that you're trying to tweak and then you're going to put this formula in a box and then other people are going to pull the formula out and then without any help from you at all they're going to read this rule book and uh follow this formula and hopefully they'll have a good time doing it uh, do you make the same four people play the same game 15 times after they told you they hated it no <laughs> <laughs> okay no, um, I, I wouldn't I was, have any friends left if I did that. <laughs> There's a little bit of hyperbole there. Um, it, and this is actually something that new designers run into um, in that they don't really know people to play test with. So they ask their friends and um, if they're lucky, they strike on something good or they have really patient friends and they start building a game that uh, – uh, that starts working and they can their friends are still interested maybe their friends feel a little bit of ownership over the game more often than not the friends say i never want to play this piece of crap again and uh and the designer pretty much puts the game back on the shelf and doesn't touch it uh the secret i found is to find other designers other board game designers and play with them because they know the process they know what they're in for and we all have this um we, we like the process of working on a broken game. We like playing broken games because we like to see what, how we can fix it and what would make the game really sing. Well, so, yeah, and you know what you don't like. Like with, with, with just friends, mm -hmm. they know they don't like it, but they don't mm -hmm. know why they don't like it. Exactly. They don't and, have a vocabulary. Yeah, yeah, working with professionals makes that so much easier. Yep. Yeah, they don't have a vocabulary for it. There's there's a there's a pretty big vocabulary that's that's growing um constantly, especially because 
um, not so much with board games, but very much with video games. There's this academic scene that's starting to starting to develop around games. Um, NYU now offers a master's in game design, uh, and uh, I think that other schools probably aren't far behind. Um, video game design certainly is big business, and there's money to be had there, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, really interesting academic questions that uh, people pose to each other um, about this. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, there's a, there, there's a, I forget what what originally spurred me under this. Oh, the vocabulary. That's right. Um, just the idea of having a common vocabulary and a, a framework with which to discuss, like why this game is working and why this game may not be working. I find it's really really valuable. I as a as a former freelance designer. I can very much relate to that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's you can go back and forth with a client all day before you finally figure out what it is they're actually uh, upset by or concerned mm-hmm. about. But mm-hmm. with another designer, you can you can battle it out in five minutes and and know exactly what you need to change. Because mm-hmm. sometimes small problems might appear like large problems. Uh, they might say, oh, I hate this. You know, this isn't working yeah. for me at all. And it turns out it's just this one tiny tweak that you need to make and it makes everything better. Yep. Yeah. So tell me, what is the essence of a fun board game? What's what's the key ingredient for you that if you had to boil it down to something you could explain? Well, this is tough because... Um, it it depends on the game. I mean, the com to me, I, I I feel pretty strongly about this. Uh, is that the common denominator for um, a good game is fun? Now, of course, that's a really vague and weaselly answer. So, um, what fun actually is depends on the game. So, if you're playing a party game or a trivia game, what you find fun is going to be very different than what you find fun about like a two and a half three hour strategy game. Um, and uh, what you find, and maybe you go to a trick-taking game, like a 30-minute trick-taking game after that, and maybe that's going to be a completely different kind of fun. So um, it really depends on um, on what kind of game you're trying to play, but you're trying to get people into this, into, into this state. Um, let me see if I can define this properly. Um, you're trying to create this other world and it's not a literal other world the way a video game can make a little little literal other world like for example in a video game you might feel completely transported and put into another character and see what they see and hear what they hear and with a board game this other world might just be this little playground of pulleys and levers that you know you pull on this lever and what happens if you do this pull on that pulley and what happens if i do that and you know twist this rope and uh, turn that faucet and try to figure out what all these interesting controls do and uh, that in its in and of itself is its own little world so um you're trying to get people into that world you're trying to get people out of the real world you're, you're trying to make them forget they're playing a game and just uh and just get themselves out of their heads for uh 30 minutes 120 minutes however long the game is um and if that's uh if you do that by um having them laugh at really weird really weird answers to trivia questions or if you do that by having them try to figure out what the optimal strategy is to figure out how they can win this heavy strategy game uh Either way uh, is is going to uh, 
do accomplish that goal of transporting them away from the real world. Here's the thing about board games is it's innately inherently a social activity mm-hmm. and there's there's an actual real world competition happening in a social environment whereas mm-hmm. most video games not all but in most video game and like iPhone game and just about anything that I play with on my phone there's really I'm competing against myself and all my favorite games and the only thing that keeps me interested in, in interested in a game is a certain amount of risk and reward. I have mm-hmm. a for me, I don't I don't get lost in games. I've I've tried playing some very elaborate like Xbox 360 games and I can't I can't do it. But I assume that the reason there are 60,000 different board games is because everyone has a different uh, kind of what turns you on. Absolutely. And when I started playing games, I didn't think that was the case. I thought that games were just this on this narrow spectrum of either they're fun or they're not fun, either they're good or they're not good. Um, and I wasn't expecting to be there to be so many different aesthetics in uh, in game design. And it turns out there are there are all sorts of things that some people like and some people detest in games. And I found out there were a bunch of things that I personally don't enjoy in a game that other people go crazy for in a game. So what's more important, the aesthetics or the mechanics? Uh, the eternal question. Um, what they say is that the, the theme, the aesthetics, uh, get the game on the table, you know, get you to mm-hmm. start playing the game. Uh, but the, me- the mechanisms keep you in the game, and that's what actually uh, makes you decide, wow, I really enjoyed this game. I want to buy it. I want to play it again, versus, eh, that was okay. You know, I'll take it or leave it. I'm not crazy about it. Um, I, I think, I think they're, I know this is a Weasley answer again. I think they're both very important. Um, and as a designer, you're trying to make them, uh, intersect in this really happy place. You're trying to get them, you know, get the theme and the mechanism, get the presentation of the game and the actual, uh, rules of the game mesh, you know, meshing in a way that it just works. And there's this real, uh, real pleasure that comes out of, oh, wow, this, this mechanism perfectly makes me perfectly models what this designer was trying to model. Um, you know, either it might make you feel like you're say fighting a dragon, or maybe it might just perfectly mirror like a market of supply and demand. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I couldn't get lost in a market or in a (laughs) dragon scenario. My favorite, my favorite game is actually, uh, well, Super Monsters Ate My Condo on my phone is my favorite, but uh, one of my favorites is Letterpress, which has mm-hmm. just the most... Have you seen this game? Yeah, I played it. It's so simplistic in design, mm-hmm. but the mechanics are brilliant to me. Like, it's exactly the kind of game that I can get completely hooked on, and it has that social element. Like, mm-hmm. you cannot play it by yourself. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, this is again. This is the a good example of you know games doing it for some people and not for others. I wasn't crazy about Letterpress. Um, are, are you I, a word nerd? Uh, well, this is kind of strange. Um, I most word games I dislike uh, to the point that my first published game is a word game because <laughs> I got so tired of playing other word games. I said, "Screw it, I'm going to design my own." So I did design my own. Tell I me think, about. I want to hear about your first game. Okay, so it's a word game called Prolix. Um, it was published in September of 2010, 
and it briefly um, made an appearance on shelves of Barnes and Noble around the country, which was fantastic. Um, but then it fell out of print. Uh, the rights are back with me. Uh, whenever I get my act together, I'm going to um, try to work on an iPhone version of the game, which I think would be incredible fun. But uh, right now, I'm spending so much time uh, working on my current game that uh, it's just something that oh, I, I think about. Yeah, I really want to do that. And then uh, get busy doing other things. Uh, but So Prolix is a word game where there are eight letters out on a common board. And on your turn, you come up with a word. Um, now, the letters are all consonants. You don't need to have your entire word on the board. So your word can be as long as you want it to be, and you just fill in the missing letters. Uh, you're trying to match as many letters on the board as possible. Uh, so the game actually rewards really long letters, uh, which is unusual with a lot of word games. Uh, they usually expect you to uh, come up... Uh, to have all of the letters either in cards or on tiles. Um, and that's what I think uh, is really the pull for Prolix, is the fact that you have this freedom to come up with really huge, big words. Um, I got beaten one game because somebody used the word bachelorette, and you're not going to see that in most other word games. Uh, so that was um, is that real-time... Uh, I'm sorry, that... Um, that element of coming up with extra letters is one of the things that I really like about the game that I don't see in too many other word games. I've seen a couple of other word games since then with that mechanism, uh, but uh, it's it's I I personally prefer the the way I did it. But you know I've got selfish reasons for thinking that. For the record, mm-hmm. um, I did manage to play Portmanteau against Mike Rose in Letterpress. Mm-hmm. That that's. That's a pretty good use of tiles, but that, yeah, I, I found I found your game on CoolStuffInc.com. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you can still buy it for seventeen dollars. It says it's they have one in stock. Yeah, uh, because um, even it, it's out of print, but that doesn't mean that it's not still available in stores. Gotcha. But um, you know, when the stores sell out, then that's going to be it until somebody else makes another version of the game. So, okay, I'm going to take a quick sponsor break. I was going to ask you a question, but then I looked at the time. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to tell you quickly about MailChimp.com. Easy email newsletters. MailChimp helps you design email newsletters, share them on social networks, integrate with services you already use, and track your results. It's like your own personal publishing platform. They help you customize your sign-up form to match your brand so you can share it on your website and integrate it into your Facebook page. You can even collect signups from an iPad or a laptop. Importing an existing list into MailChimp is a snap, no matter how it's formatted. And you can personalize everything your subscribers see, including sign-up forms and confirmation emails. There's never been a better time to try MailChimp. With 2,000 subscribers, you can send 12,000 emails per month forever. Just visit MailChimp.com slash 5 by 5 to learn more. So tell me about the process uh, in, in brief, not like every minute of it, but <laughs> when you, when you start to, when you start with a, a an idea, like you get past mm-hmm. the idea phase and you're starting to design a game, mm-hmm. are you working on paper? Are you building things? Are you like creating paper mache mock-ups? What do you do? <laughs> uh, I think it's very, very important to do, uh, to iterate rapidly. 
especially early on. Um, I think a lot of new designers fall into this trap of uh, overvaluing their initial idea and say and trying to get it perfect in their heads. And it's not going to be perfect in your head. There's no way. It's impossible. You have to get that sucker out onto the table. So usually my very early prototypes, I just print onto regular plain paper, you know, I slice it out and I just move the bits around, you know, pretend I'm different players, play a few rounds and try to figure out just very basic broad stroke questions. Are the decisions that these players making, are they interesting? Is there something fun over here? Uh, what will happen sometimes is, uh, whereas your initial idea, you thought that the game was uh, over in one area of the rules. It turns out the fun decisions are actually someplace completely different. So you trash the first part of the game, you keep the second part of the game, and you start building uh, the game around that. And very early on, you don't want to spend too much time on, on the physical bits of the game. You just want to get it out, uh, try to figure out what's fun about it, and um, at some point get to a point where the um, decisions are very, very interesting. Um, or at least, you know, they point to a scenario where the decisions can get interesting. Uh, so to answer an earlier question of yours, when you're, dealing, when you're designing a strategy game, um, interesting decisions, I think, are a key for a strategy game. You want the players to really be agonizing over um, their choices, but um, sometimes even an agonizing decision isn't an interesting decision. You want the decision they make in maybe the first or second round to have real significant impl implications for the rest of the game, uh, but not be so significant that the wrong decision hoses them five minutes into the game and they're just twiddling their thumbs for the rest of it. See, and that's why, that's why I think the idea of risk and reward really is the essence between, I mean, you've got, you've got a guy who plays craps all day, which is pretty much pure chance. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of strategy in that. And then mm -hmm. you have the guy who plays poker and, mm -hmm. and there's a lot, a whole lot of strategy in that, but they're both, they're both gambling and they're both getting that reward for taking chances. Mm -hmm. And in a strategy game, when you're agonizing over a decision, it's mm -hmm. because you're about to take a risk. That agony comes from the knowledge that this could fail and you could lose mm -hmm. just like rolling dice. Mm -hmm. Uh, and sometimes there's uh, sometimes there's another way to make that decision. Also, sometimes you might say, "Well, I could take path A, but that would do close uh, the doors to paths B and C. I could take path B, but then that would close off paths A and C, and so on." So that becomes uh, like a pure, purely intellectual pursuit. Like you, that's puzzle solving. So, well, yes and no, uh, because sometimes you 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 say, well, if I make this decision now, um, is this going to help my opponents? Is this going to hurt my opponents? Is this going to help one opponent and hurt another opponent? Um, and there's implications. It's not to me a puzzle is uh, is like an intellectual um, activity, like a game is. Uh, except that, uh, given enough time, you're going to solve a puzzle. Uh, but a good game, given enough time, you won't solve the game because every time you play it, uh, something different is going to happen. To me, that's the really crucial distinction between a game and a puzzle. Okay, so I showed you Super Monsters Ate My Condo before the show. Yeah, I'm still recovering. Yeah, I I play that game almost daily and have for probably over a year now. And like, I keep coming back to it, even though it's the exact same thing. Every time I just keep getting higher scores. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I think for me, it's a great way to, like when I just want to zone out for a minute, mm-hmm. like it's kind of my stress reliever, mm-hmm. but, but how, what in a game where nothing ever changes, but people keep playing when there's that certain level of addictiveness to the game, what, what would explain that? Well, I, I, I mean, I haven't played that particular game, but I, I don't really believe that nothing is is different i mean when i say things are different i'm talking about the specific game state and the specific actual choices uh, that true. you're making because uh, yeah if you do like b- this being a game if you do something wrong you're going to lose early on so uh you have to do things you know for lack of a better word right according to what the game tells you is the right thing to do but that thing won't always be the same thing there are times when you go left in game one that you have to go right in game two um, now with a puzzle, those choices, you don't really have those choices. You know, you can go left, you can go right. It doesn't really matter because if going left doesn't work, you just go right instead. Um, you know, you try going left first, that doesn't work. So you go right and going right works. Um, and given enough time, you know, you'll figure out the right thing to do. Have you seen, I'm sorry to keep bringing up word games, but have you seen a game called, um, spell tower? Uh, I saw it a while ago. Um, it combines like it combines the idea of a puzzle, mm-hmm. like uh, like a word puzzle with mm-hmm. with arcade action where things start moving and dropping on you. And um, there's another one. Uh, I can't remember the names of all of them right now. There are a couple that uh, there's one that's Tetris mixed with um with a with a letter game. Mm-hmm. So as the blocks drop. When you get three of them together, you can tap it and they turn into letters. And if you can spell words, you can make them go away. Mm. So it gets really frantic and really fast. And you're generally making a bunch of three and four letter words. But it's I don't know. It's a it's a really interesting take on the idea of a Scrabble kind of game. It is. It's it's I mean, when I was designing Prolix, I had the opportunity at some points to introduce other elements into the game. And for Prolix in particular, um, I wanted to um, – I realized that what I wanted was a pure word game. Um, I realized that if I put other elements into the game, it would pull away from what I thought was the core of the idea, which was that this is a game about coming up with huge words. The fun of the game is somebody saying a really huge – you know, somebody saying ornithopter and everybody else saying, "Ooh, wow, that's the fun part of the game. That's, you know, where the where the fun is and putting uh, other elements in the game would distract from that. Uh, now, so so uh, I've heard of other word games. Uh, I know somebody at one point, uh, you know, tried to mix a word game with other elements. And it that's tricky to do because you um I'm not saying it's impossible to do, uh, but you, sometimes you lose the focus of you know what the word game is, and um, it, you you run the risk of it not being either thing. You know, it's not enough of a word game and not enough of this other thing. So, um, in the board game space, it's a little trickier to do. Um, I don't really. As you can probably tell from my reactions, I don't play that many video games. I play a few here and there, um, but to me, uh, you know, a lot of video games rely on dexterity. A lot of them rely on uh, like a real-time mechanism. Um, and some of them just take a long time to finish, uh, which I don't really have a lot of these days, unfortunately. Do you, so, find, do you find that stressful? Like in, in video games, do you prefer board games? I guess I'm asking because they are a little bit lower stress or does that have nothing to do with it? Because I know like there's like catchphrase and stuff gets really 
stressful? Stress is an interesting word. I don't know if I don't know if it's that it's the stress. Um, I think. Well, let, let, if you look at the different kinds of video games, let's look at a game like, for example, Grand Theft Auto. Um, I got really frustrated with Gra- Grand Theft Auto because it's at its heart a dexterity game. You know, you have to do, you have to hit the buttons in exactly the right sequence, or you have to go back to the beginning. And I just got bored of always having to go back to the beginning of a level. Um, and there's a lot of games in that vein where you need to develop this almost monastic devotion to the game to actually play it right. Now, this comes from someone like me. I am not a very coordinated person, so I'm not very good at a lot of these games. Um, someone more dexterous than me can usually blow through these games, and the levels that take that would take me hours, you know, maybe takes them half an hour at most, you know, and then they'd say, wow, that was really hard, and I'd say, well, that took me weeks to figure out. Um, so, to me, I just the frustration factor just got too high, and I felt that all the time I was putting in just wasn't paying off. Uh, whereas with a board game, you know, on the side of the box, if the box says it's ninety minutes, you know, it's probably going to be ninety minutes, and then you finish playing, and that ninety-minute chunk is done. And I really like that. To me, that's really appealing. That you've gone through the whole arc of the game in ninety minutes, as opposed to, well, you know, I've played ninety minutes, but my ninety minutes was just, you know, this five minutes repeated over and over and over again, trying to get this one level done. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I to be fair, Grand Theft Auto, I believe, has one of the highest learning curves for the controller. Mm-hmm. I've only played it twice and both times I spent the entire time running over hookers on the sidewalk. Cause I couldn't <laughs> stay on the road. <laughs> That's going to be the quote for this episode. I think. Yeah, there we go. The, write that one down. Um, I, and it's, it's, it's weird because there are some games that I find really, um, I remember being at a game convention about five or six years ago and it was the first time I ever saw the game shadow of the Colossus. And I was just amazed at how, is that a video gorgeous. game? I've never that's heard a, of it. That's a video game that came out for the PlayStation, so it's actually quite old. It probably came out in the early to mid-aughts. I don't remember exactly when. Um, so it came out, and it's it, in terms of game design, it's it's actually really fascinating because each level you're up against one monster, and the hook of the game is that the monster is enormous. Uh, and when I say enormous, I don't mean like three times the size of you. It's it, you know, if you're like a six foot tall human, this monster is easily like 200, 300 feet. The monster is enormous uh, and you have to figure out a way to beat the monster. Um, so it's uh, the first off, the scope of the game is jaw dropping, seeing the, your little human versus this enormous monster. Uh, your human has a horse that he can ride, and the horse is absolutely lovingly modeled. I and mean, the horse looks incredible, and it, it seems to move and ride like a real horse. Uh, the controls, for example, it's not like push the forward button to go forward because that's not how you ride a horse. You have to hit the X button to spur the horse, and the more you spur the horse, the faster it goes, unless you spur him too much, in which case he'll just get tired and stop. Uh, so they put a lot of thought into that interface. And all this sounds great until you get to the fact that um, I can make it probably about – five minutes into the game and then I die. Uh, it is brutally hard. So, um, you know, that sort of helped my disillusionment with video games along, you know, this, this idea that, you know, this is, I, there's a lot of people who love video games and are really good at video games and bless them all. But that, that's just not for me anymore. You know, I prefer something that like I can sit down 
and uh, you know know the know the rules of. And maybe the first game I'm just pushing buttons and hitting dials, but maybe three or four games I'm, I feel pretty good about how to play. Um, and it's got nothing to do with mashing buttons or uh, timing the jump perfectly. It's all about uh, just strategic decisions. So yeah, I think I think the bottom line here is that it would be rare to find two people who had the exact same taste in things like like challenge level, difficulty level, uh, uh, risk reward level. Like mm-hmm. there's so many different aspects in what makes a game enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And obviously the things that I don't like in a game are obviously not a problem for, you know, half the rest of the world mm-hmm. because these games are, are huge and they sell. And mm-hmm. is there one game aside? I think Monopoly is probably like everyone's played Monopoly. Is there one game that you think appeals to the broadest possible audience? No. No, <laughs> everything's mean, there, niche. Everything's there, a niche. No, it's not that it's niche. It's just that even like if like I'm going to go onto like if I go onto say boardgamegeek.com and I look at any of the top three games that they have right now, um, so they have uh, pages of rankings, just pages and pages where people rank the game and write a comment about what they thought of the game. And everybody gets to rank the game from 1 to 10. And the number one game right now is a game called Twilight Struggle. It models, it's a two-player game that models the Cold War. One player is the U.S. and one player is Russia. And um, out of 10, the average rating, uh, not the Bayesian rating they use, but the raw average rating, is 8.34, which is ridiculously high considering that it's got 14,000 voters. And yet you go to the page and you go all the way to the end and you see uh, a lot of people rating it 1, 1, 1, 1. Now, some people have stupid political reasons for rating a game 1. Maybe they don't like the designer. Maybe they don't like the publisher. Maybe they've never played it, but the theme doesn't appeal to them. But there's some people who legitimately rate the game a 1 because they just didn't like it. And this is a game that everybody else loves um so you know mathematically you know you can have a game that's brilliant and awesome and amazing uh but not everybody's going to like it now that said uh we in the hobby have games that we call gateway games and gateway games are games that they're they're called gateway games because they're like gateway drugs they're games that will likely get you in the hobby um these are games that are so well made uh you're probably going to like them you may not 100 percent like them but you probably will like them more than a one star yes 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 random aside about ratings yeah i've realized that a one star rating is actually it's it's worse than a no star rating <laughs> like one stars are vindictive mm-hmm. and you give something a one star you know you're affecting the average Mm-hmm. You know, the average rating and mm-hmm. it, you do it very intentionally. Two stars is the same as a one star, but for people with a conscience, mm-hmm. three, it's, four and five are all the same to me. It's a little like if you're if you really want to leave, if you really didn't like the service at a restaurant, um, you don't leave no tip. You leave like a couple of cents. Yeah, you show exactly. Them that you you had the option of <laughs> paying, but this is all you really care to pay. You took the trouble to pay. Exactly. And this is all that, it's that, it's they that were you worth. took. It's it's that someone went back and said, I didn't like this so much that I'm going back to a game. I didn't like to rate it poorly. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, you look at someone like uh, Roger Ebert's reviews, um, his no star reviews tend to be a lot more 
memorable than his one star reviews. One star, his one star remove, uh, one star reviews tend to be movies that just didn't work. Uh, but his no star reviews are for movies that he felt had no redeeming social value. That I think either he or Siskel said it said that it did not improve um, the experience of sitting at a blank screen for an equivalent amount of time. <laughs> So, uh, so a a no star review is still better than a no review. I mean, it's still a no star review is more uh, uh, biting than no review. Yeah. So it's the equivalent of one star. And sometimes, I mean, there are some movies where, you know, I I don't like to say, you know, the idea of the movie is to provoke a reaction because I think that tends to lead to really, really bad art. But uh, you look at a movie, for example, Blue Velvet uh, was actually – that was a movie that he gave a no-star review to. Really? Uh, Yes, he gave a no-star review. He felt that it was exploitative, especially to Isabella Rossellini. He felt that her role – her performance was really brave in that movie and that – that Lynch just exploited her in the movie. Did he like uh, anything Lynch did? Cause if you don't like that, you're not going to like eraser head. I think he respected Lynch from what I could see. I, I remember um, it took him a while to warm up to the Coen brothers. The first few Coen brothers reviewed uh, films that he reviewed. He just couldn't get into their stylized world. And uh, once far, well, once Barton Fink hit, uh, he absolutely adored that movie. And then, Fargo hit, and then that was one of his favorite movies. Period. Uh, with Lynch, I don't know if he had a similar um, if he had a similar reaction. I, I'd imagine that there's probably a movie or two from Lynch that he liked. Well, Lynch got boring in his his later years, though. That might be, that might like, be all. It you, took. <laughs> you can't go from a Racerhead to Dune mm-hmm. without like a major paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. I mean, whereas like the Coen Brothers, even even Tarantino, they mm-hmm. got better at doing what they always were doing. They just got mm-hmm. better at, at the aesthetics of it mm-hmm. and the polish of it. Um, and, and like Tarantino, like it was always obvious what he was going for. It's just now in more recent films, he's actually gotten there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's interesting to see, uh, there's an, another no star review to me that was pretty memorable was uh, pink flamingos. Uh, just because he said he felt that giving, it wasn't that he wanted to give Pink Flamingos no stars. He felt that it was useless. He felt that giving the movie but, any rating at all was completely useless. He said this movie exists outside the realm of critical commentary like the weather. <laughs> like the weather. It's like giving the weather ratings. What's that going to do to the weather? The weather's still going to be the weather. You know, it's still going to rain to Mars. Yeah. It's just it, – it's, but it was such an interesting idea that like – you know, there, this rating will have absolutely no effect on this kind of movie. I mean, it, it, in a way, it was sort of a withdrawal. It wasn't even no stars. It was almost like no no rating that he gave to that movie. And I, uh, he was always full of really thoughtful stuff like that. Speaking of, mm-hmm. I just skimmed a review of mm-hmm. Prolix. Uh-oh. And I'm not going to read it to you. Uh, Good. But, I, I don't read well, yeah, it. Listen to, to this, reading. though. Like, yeah? It's a long review. Yeah. And it starts off and it calls you out by name and it yeah. says that the box is, in his word, fugly. You yep. get wait you get down to the last paragraph. Uh-huh. And he says, I'll go out and say that Prolix is my favorite word game. Oh that's wow. how the paragraph begins at the end. Like he wow. works his way from from how it almost didn't end up on his table to mm-hmm. how it ended up being his favorite game. Wow. So that's a that's a thoughtful and and productive review to me. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really inter- interesting transportation. Yeah, I I um I just worry about my fragile, delicate ego, and I know that I know that, I know, know. <laughs> I know that the horse. Yeah, I'm not pulling any punches. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, no, um, also another element of it is that um, I tr- I generally don't participate in the graphical side of things. Uh, it's one reason. There's a lot of designers out there who enjoy publishing their own games and who like having total control. Uh, that's not me because I don't have a very good graphical eye. Uh, so I tend to leave that to the publisher. Um, and uh, they give me uh, like veto power. Or they tell me that you know I can give my input. Uh, but generally, with uh, with uh, on the graphical side, I, my input is just you know this works for the game. This doesn't work for the game. You know this is hard to read. This is hard to make out. This needs to be more of an icon and less of a drawing. Uh, but generally, it's not like there's too much red. I don't like the color balance here. I don't have an eye for that. Um, so I generally trust the publisher when he chooses a cover. I say, well, okay, that's that's going to be your decision, and it's why I'm not a publisher personally. Can, do uh, you, can you detach from the criticism, though? It's still your game. Does it still affect you? It does. I mean, Prolix took about three years to design, um, not three years of like constant work. It was pretty much nights and weekends. Um, and, you know, I feel really connected to it. Um, I, you know, I get a lot of uh, and I went through a whole process of, you know, getting feedback from people when I play tested it. So now that I feel like the game is out and it's available, um, you know, maybe if if the game ever gets re-released, I'll go through some reviews and see what people like and didn't like about it and maybe tweak a thing here or there based on what they, what they thought. But when it comes to things like, you know, the cover or the, the physical presentation, um, the, um, yeah, it's weird also because everyone I showed uh, the cover to before the game came out loved it. They were like, Oh, this cover's great, man. This cover's great. Not a single bad word about it. So I thought, Hey, that's great. Everybody likes the cover. Of course, once the game came out, nobody had a good word for the cover. So um, yeah, product testing doesn't work like yeah, it, market surveys and mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, you know it, it. And if you if I ever you know whenever I find somebody uh, who says you know I don't really like this this thing in your game, when I still have a chance to change it, that person is gold to me. You know that person is. Yeah, I want to keep you around because I trust you, and I know that you're going to tell me this at a point when I can do something about it. Yeah. Yep, makes sense. All right, mm-hmm. I got to take our second sponsor break, yes. which is one I'm really excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's special because I've been a hardcore user of this product ever since it came into existence, and uh, and I've loved it from afar. And now they are directly sponsoring Systematic, which means I get paid a little extra for this one. So I'm doing something I love and making money at it, which is rare in my life. Um, But the the lesson here is that if you love something hard enough and long enough, it pays off, except with people. Yeah, I was going to say. They're unpredictable. And there are laws against that. Yes. Generally, the more you you love someone, the more you push them away. But that's a different story. Yes. I'm talking about inanimate objects or graphical flat objects. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about text expander here. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's one of my all time must have favorite utilities on the Mac. Um, Mm -hmm. You can use it for everything from expanding short abbreviations like I, I, I can type minus equals on my computer right next to each other. Mm-hmm. And that fills in my name uh, when mm-hmm. I sign off an email. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's second nature to me. I never, I, I when I actually have to type my name for some reason, mm-hmm. it, it feels painfully slow. Um, <laughs> but that's just the beginning because you can use text expander to trigger Apple scripts and shell scripts, which is something a nerd like me uses uh, pr- to a point where I balance out the extra productivity gain with uh, t- fiddling losses. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but on my website, if you look up TE snippets, um, mm-hmm. There's a whole tool there where you can download all of my experiments. Mm-hmm. And Text Expander also has fill in snippets, which let you set variables in snippets. And then when you trigger the snippet, you can fill those in so that you can have dynamic snippets. Um, you can have text fields, pop up menus, option selections, and it makes it really easy to automate. A lot of the a lot of the more tedious kind of work that goes into things like answering emails or typing up uh, like meeting notes and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and Text Expander is available for iOS as Text Expander Touch because of the limitations of iOS. It doesn't work in the background like it does on the Mac. But the developers at Smile created an SDK that allows communication and uh, that other apps can then support. And there are over 140 iOS apps that have Text Expander support now, including most of the leading iOS text editing apps. In fact, I think you'd be crazy to make a text editing app and not have Text Expander support. I think that would be shooting yourself in the foot. Mm. Um, I even have a snippet group in my TE snippets for uh, for creating Markdown quickly in text editors mm. uh, on iPad. Um, right now, Text Expander is $34.95, but Systematic listeners can get it for 20% off a full license until September 10th. Uh, use the coupon code systematic. should be easy to remember. Mm-hmm. And the discount applies to family packs and office uh, office packs, but does not apply to upgrades. So there, go get Text Expander. I guarantee you won't regret it. Guarantee Excellent. it. I have a coworker, I think, who uses it, and he swears by it. I Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to a guy who refused to use Spotlight to find an app, <laughs> but I, I do think I think you would. Uh, now, now, I wasn't looking for the app. I was looking for the icon menu, in my menu. Yeah, bar. I know. That's I know. what I was looking for. I know. <laughs> I, I won't I won't debate it with you right now. Um, <laughs> let's do top three picks. OK, um, I picked three board games um, because uh, that is near and dear to dear to my heart. Um, in fact, I picked three strategy games. Um and these are games. Uh, these are three games that I feel uh, that have been out for a while. That um, that that really help. Um, that 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 really start to get people. That that might get you interested in some really intricate, interesting games. Um, so, well, tell me. Just tell me the first one. Okay, um, I'm going to start with a game called Raw. Spelled R A W. No, just R-A, as in the, the Egyptian ah, sun yes. god. Yes. Okay. So, so Ra is a German game that is an auction game. Um, this is uh, so uh, players are trying to bid on lots that come up. Um, so so Ra was designed by a designer named uh, Reiner Kinesia, who is a very celebrated designer. He had a lot of incredible games come out uh in the aughts, uh, he slowed down a little bit now uh, for reasons that uh, 
people talk about. There's a lot of gossip in politics, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, Raw is one of his best designs. Um, it's a, I played it yesterday, as a matter of fact, with a bunch of people who never played it before. And uh, they were blown away. They were they were laughing. They were agonizing. They were clenching their teeth. It was so much fun to watch them interact with the amazing decisions that he forces you to go through. That sounds interesting. I'm scanning the Wikipedia page right now mm-hmm. and it does, it seems very intriguing. It's a kind of board game. I don't think I've ever experienced. Yeah. It's uh yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned monopoly before. Um, I should have mentioned chess. Yeah. I mean, chess is the thing about ch- chess is it takes a, uh, you get to a certain level and then you've got to study to get to the next level. And a lot of the games I like, you don't need that studying part. You know, you get to a certain level and then uh, that's it. You can pretty much stop there. Uh, you don't need to spend the rest of your life to work on the game. And that to me is an appeal of that. Some people like lifetime games. They like studying Go. They like studying Bridge. Uh, they like studying these games for their whole lives. But uh, for me, I like games that, uh, you know, that might, that could reward uh, repeated plays. And, you know, I try to play them uh, when I get a chance. But at the same time, um, I don't want to have to devote my life to a single game. So, uh, so you like the slot machines? No, not really. No. Uh, <laughs> um, you like a low barrier, a low barrier to entry, but but uh, an enduring level of challenge. Does I that like make op- sense? I like options. I like variety. Yeah, and okay. if if you uh, if you play one game all the time, you don't you you don't get that variety. I mean, granted, you're probably not looking for that variety in the first place. So uh, again, it's it depends on the person. The life game lifetime games are popular for a reason uh, because a lot of people really do enjoy devoting themselves. I mean, there's this. I mean, there's Marcel Duchamp is a great example. Um, he uh, he stopped uh, creating art because he became obsessed with chess. And he fell in love with chess, and that was it for him as an artist. Um, he he preferred the world that chess gave him. Um, it's funny because we talked about Monopoly also, and I think Monopoly, personally, I think Monopoly is a fantastic example of a horrible, horrible game. Just a terrible <laughs> way to spend three hours or four hours or six hours. Easily six hours. People you never want to see again when you're done with the game. Right. Uh, I mean, what doesn't, yeah, I cheated so many times. Yeah. And what doesn't help is that people insist on playing with these house rules that just extend the life of the game. I mean, if you play the game with the rules as intended, you know, it's really more like, um, it's more like dental surgery than a vivisection, I'd say, but it's still, it's still pretty bad. Um, so uh, there are people who disagree with me. There's a lot of gamers who say, you know, Monopoly is not bad if you play with the actual rules, but it's. Nobody um, I, does that. Yeah, it's too I, I, boring to play with the actual rules. I feel like it's there are so many games that do what that do better, and yet Monopoly is it, it feels like the McDonald's of board games. You know, it feels like this product that everybody knows and everybody is familiar with, and they Marketing. go to it. Yeah, they they know what they're going to get. Um, whereas you know, a game like Ra, you know, you'll approach it because you're hesitantly because you don't know what you're in for but then you play it and it, a lot of people say I, I never thought a game could be like this that uh number one it was engaging it was fun and it didn't last longer than it needed to a game of raw is about 90 minutes 
and then you finish actually more like 60 minutes, really. It's about 60 minutes. And then you finish and you say, wow, that was a lot of fun. I believe there is an iOS version of raw, by the way. Um, yeah. So you might be able to check that out. I don't think, I don't recall it being a spectacular implementation. It was a decent implementation, but, um, you know, uh, I, I don't recall it being, you know, knocking my socks off. Not like the next game I'm going to mention. Okay, let me do, let me do something completely unrelated first. Sure, sure, certainly. My, fir- my, my first pick. Yes. We'll go back and forth. Oh, my, okay, I see. My first one is uh, it's called Shiori, and okay. it's not a game. In okay. fact, I should have thought ahead and realized that we're going to be talking about games the whole time. <laughs> and then my top three picks, none of them are games. That's but, okay. <laughs> but Shiori is a, a little client uh, for pinboard and delicious bookmarking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can pop up with a hotkey and you can search your bookmarks right from uh, from the keyboard without having to even touch a mouse. Uh, it does a tag suggestion and you can you have a global hotkey. And when you hit it, if you're in a web browser, it'll pull the URL and uh, title for you. And then you can type in tags in a description. Mm-hmm. Hit hit return and you've got bookmarks. I use it with Pinboard. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I don't bookmark locally ever, uh, mm. except for maybe like things that I visit every day and just want a shortcut key for. Yep. But I don't say bookmarks for things that are interesting. I mm-hmm. use things like Pinboard and and uh, Instapaper for that. Mm-hmm. But Fury is free right now anyway. And it's it lacks some things that something like Deli Bar can do, but it's really fast, really lightweight, and not bad looking. Mm. Not bad for a free app. Not bad. All right, second game. Okay, so actually, I'm going to jump. I'm going to take this time to jump to a different game. Um, my number two uh, is actually a diff- uh, uh, not the number two I was expecting to do before, but I decided just now that I'll flip two and three. You got to so stop new- saying number two. <laughs> what do you have to go to the bathroom i can wait <laughs> all right so my number two is a game that came out in 2008 called dominion it's a card game um and i remember in like 2006 2007 people said well you know board games there's even people in the board game business said that well there aren't really that many new ideas i guess there aren't any new ideas in board games anymore and then dominion came out and turned everything on its head it, it developed a new um, there's a new mechanism that it put in. It's not technically a new mechanism, um, but it's the first time that it got put within the context of a game. Uh, so Dominion is a card game where you're buying cards from a central uh, from a central tableau. Uh, so the the what makes it different is that everybody has their own personal deck. So everybody has their own deck of cards that starts the game identical. And then with your deck of cards, you're going to buy cards from the middle of the table. The interesting thing is the card that you buy goes into your discard pile. The cards that you spend go into your discard pile. And then the rest of your hand goes into your discard pile. And then you draw a new hand. The idea being at some point you're going to run out of your draw deck and reshuffle your discard pile. And your discard pile now includes those cards that you just bought. So your deck got a little more powerful. And then as you keep playing, everybody's deck goes in a slightly different direction and everybody gets to choose these different paths and their decks develop their own personalities. So this mechanism we call deck building, um, if you're at all familiar with Magic the Gathering. I was just going to say, this sounds a little bit familiar. Exactly. The designer actually worked on Magic uh, and he adapted uh, this mechanism from this 
uh, practice of magic players between games tweaking their deck so that uh, when they brought their deck to a tournament or to a game, uh, it would be finely tuned and tuned the way they want it. Uh, in Dominion, the whole game is building your deck. Uh, and it's a very, very interesting game that has spawned an entire uh, genre of games called deck builders. Now, uh, these days, there's out of the hundreds of games that come out, maybe at least 50 are deck builders, you know, and I'm sure this is going to be a fad that's going to die down in a few years. But I think there, you know, there's probably going to always be deck builders, just games that bring on interesting spins of deck uh, to, to the mechanism. Right now, there are games that are just shameless clones of Dominion. That they're like, this is, I actually call them um, LDBs, uh, like Dominion, but. <laughs> this game is just like Dominion, but you can do this. Like Dominion, but you can do that. Uh, there's a couple of games that I think uh, do the deck building thing better than Dominion do. Uh, better than Dominion does. I can speak English. Um, but the... I, I wanted to mention Dominion because those games wouldn't exist without Dominion and because Dominion's got the ball rolling on it and it itself is a very good game. Um, it's, it easily makes my number two game All right, my two on my list. All right. I found it on Wikipedia. I'll link that. Yes. Unless you have a better link, but um, Wikipedia is fine. That's probably a, a good, a good link. Awesome. So I'm jumping from a free app to a $60 app. Uh, I, I just found iThoughts X this week. It's, it's from the maker of iThoughts HD, the mind mapping app for the iPad. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's for the Mac, which is where I do most of my mind mapping. And I was ecstatic to find it. It's lacking a few essential features that I immediately contact the develop the developer about. And he said they are in process right now. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give a wholehearted recommendation to iThoughts X because I'm absolutely sure that it's going to get things like OPML export and plain text pasting and, and things that other apps have that uh, like mind manager, it, it does everything that I like about mind manager for $40 less than mind manager costs. Um, it's more than uh, like mind node. It's about three times more than mind node, but for the money you get things like, uh, notes on on nodes image pasting links to external files all kinds of stuff that that i would normally switch to mine manager for so if you mind map at all and you're looking for something in between price range between mindjet mind manager and mind node i thoughts x is a it's gonna be it already is an excellent mind mapping program it's gonna be even better excellent okay all right ready for my number three i am Okay, so my number three game is, um, I believe it's the number two game on Board Game Geek right now, according to their rankings. Um, uh, the yep, it's the number two game, but it's, it's going to be number three in my list. It's a strategy game called Agricola. Spell um, that, spell it. A-G-R-I-C-O-L-A. -A. Okay. That's a weird name, but go ahead, tell me about it's, it. It's Latin for farmer. Um, ah. and, uh, hence agriculture. That's um, why that language died. <laughs> so, um, this out of the three games that, that I've listed, this is easily the hardest game, both in terms of picking up the rules and how much the game hates you. Uh, the game is about farming in the 16th century and that might sound boring, but just take a moment to appreciate just how difficult farming in the 16th century was. 
And uh, that's kind of how the designer approached this game. Uh, this is not... This is a game where if you're not careful, you can get really, really hosed by the game. Um, and, you know, to some people that is understandably not appealing, but to other people that challenge is amazing. Um, and sure enough, after you've played the game a couple of times, uh, it starts to, I wouldn't say it becomes easy, but you, you become uh, aware of what you should do and what you shouldn't do, and your score actually starts to improve from single digits to something respectable. Um, Agricola is a really interesting game because... When you learn the game, I highly recommend playing what they call the family game, uh, which is just sort of this uh, base game without um, without the full game. And the full game are these cards. Um, everybody in the when you play the full game, you get fourteen cards that radically change the game for you. They're special powers, but in order to activate the cards, you've got to go out of your way and spend really precious resources, and this is risk-reward, as you've mentioned before. Uh, you're risking all this, uh, these resources that you're spending, um, but hopefully what the cards give you will be something even better. And the cards are uh, designed to synergize with each other, so if you get certain card combinations, you can really go to town with them. Um, and you get 14 cards. I mentioned that because there's no way to get any other cards. Once you have the 14 cards, that's all you're going to get for the whole game. And the game comes with hundreds of cards. So once you start playing with the cards, each game is going to be totally different because you've got all this variety and you don't know what hand you're going to get and what direction, um, the game is going to suggest you go in. Um, now, I mentioned the difficulty of the game. The difficulty of the game is that it's um, what we call a worker placement game. So uh, there are a set of actions you can do that are on the board, and you take your farmer, and you put him on one of the action spaces, and nobody else can take that action for the rest of the round. And everybody has two farmers, so everybody has two actions uh, that they can do. Once everybody's placed their two actions, then everybody puts returns their farmers, and you go to the next round. Um, now one thing you can do is since your farmers, uh, farmers are supposedly a married couple, they can have kids. And the nice thing about having kids growing up on a farm is they help you. So once you have a kid, you have a third worker that you can place, but you have to be able to have a room for that worker. So, um, now you need a third, uh, now you need these resources to build extra space for that worker and you've got to be able to feed that worker. Uh, every few rounds, there's a harvest where you have to feed all of your workers. And if you get a lot of workers, well, that means you have a lot of actions, but it also means you've got to feed everyone. And that's just an example of all of these delicate decisions you have to balance in the game. Um, it's a game that came out in 2007, and it's still absolutely remarkable. It's very, very challenging, um, as opposed to the other two games, which aren't nearly as um, as uh as hostile to the player as this game is. Um, but highly recommended. It is uh, a game that I really, really enjoy. I want to make a Farmville joke, but I don't know <laughs> enough about Farmville and we're short on time. So yeah. that sounds that like it's surprising to me that it's rated as high as it is because the description of it makes it sound like there's too high a barrier to entry for me to like gain interest in it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure it would be fun once I understood everything, mm -hmm. but but I didn't I, I it's not the game I would expect to be that high in the rankings, but 
I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a ga- it is a game that once you've played, I would suggest playing the other two games I mentioned first, and then once you have gotten the hang of the other two games, then move on to Agricola. Agricola, I think I, I I gave Agricola as an example of a game that provides a lot more challenge um, and a lot more detail and a lot more heft. So you listed these in order from Gateway to to the real thing. Yes. All right. Well. I- yeah, Gateway is, uh, to me, as much a real thing as anything else. Um, and there's a lot of people who don't like Agricola because it's too, um, it's too heavy for them, um, heavy being the adjective that we use. But there's not, there, I don't think there's any uh, shame in saying that Agricola is too heavy for me. It's, it, it's, it just depends on your taste in games and what you like and what you don't. Um, I know plenty of really intelligent people who really prefer lighter games. Uh, they, some, one of the most intelligent people I know really prefers to play party games, and that's great. You know, um, It really just is a matter of finding what you enjoy and making yourself happy. All right. Um, okay, so my third one is another uh, total departure. <laughs> I, I feel kind of bad about it. But you're a programmer, too. Uh-huh. So do you use GitHub? Uh, we ha- I, at 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 my job we have our own uh, 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 source repository. Do you use Gist at all? I don't use Gist. No. Okay. I use Gist a lot. I use it for embedding code samples on my blog. I use it for storing code snippets. I use it for sharing text with private uh, private URLs. And the, I just got a copy of GistPal. Mm-hmm. And that's all one word, and it's a dollar ninety nine on the App Store, and it sits in your menu bar and gives you instant access to all of your gists, uh, in- including like uh, you can sort by star gists, you can search, and it'll it does a full text search. You can search for like the name of a definition that was in a function that you stuck in a snippet and hid away and would normally never find again. Mm-hmm. Um, it can find them instantly. It's super fast, and uh, you can also create gists from it. You can just uh, you can hit the plus button and paste in stuff and give it a name uh, with the extension to set the syntax type and you're good to go. It's Excellent. really for for two bucks. It's it's a worthwhile investment. Great. If if you are a coder, mm-hmm. I should qualify that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My mom would get absolutely zero use out of this. <laughs> All right. Um, well. I need to do one last sponsor Mm -hmm. for the awesome Shutterstock.com, which is where you'll find over 20 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and video clips. Start your search at Shutterstock.com to find that perfect image for your website, ad, publication, or any other creative project. Shutterstock gives you a global image collection to find images from across the world to suit your project. Choose between image packs and monthly subscription packages, Whatever fits your needs, and you never have to compromise. If you just need one image for your blog or a mock-up, you can do that, too. And every time you visit Shutterstock, you'll find something new, since they add 10,000 new images every day. And it's more affordable than you think, with no extra charge for large files. You can download any image at any size and pay only one price. They won't nickel and dime you for high-resolution images. If you need them, just take them. Easily curate and share pictures via Lightboxes. You can choose your favorite pictures or videos and add them to your own Lightbox gallery as you search. You can also use their iPad app to do this. There's something called Enhanced License Access. If you like an image and you want to run it on print or swag for your trade shows, then get you an enhanced license for any image. 
They also have a huge library of vectors, icons, infographic templates, and video clips should you need any of those. If you need help at Shutterstock.com, you get an account rep dedicated to you who will answer any questions, and they have 24-hour support during the week. Sign up for a free browse account at Shutterstock.com, no credit card needed. When you find the images you like and you decide to purchase, use the offer code DANSENTME8, and you'll get 30% off of anything you put together over at Shutterstock.com. All right. Okay. We're wrapping. Okay. Where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, so I have a gaming account and a more funny account. Uh, my gaming account is Ingredient X, one word. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. And that's all about board games and uh, just about the games I'm working on. So it's um, a serious side of gaming. Yeah. So that, yeah, yeah, that is, um, and I'll also be talking about uh, my the game that is uh, hopefully getting kickstarted this week called Battle Merchants, uh, which uh, Minion Games is uh, is uh, running that Kickstarter and hopefully publishing next year. Uh, so I'll be talking about that a lot. Um, make sure you get me a link for that. I'll put that in the show notes too. Yes, uh, once once that Kickstarter launches uh, later this week. Cool. Um, and uh, then there's also um, my uh, non-gaming account, which is just Gilhova, one word, G-I-L-H-O-V-A. Gilhova. And, yes. Sounds, and that, it sounds like Yiddish. <laughs> it's actually not anything. Um, I mean, Gil is Hebrew. Um, my family name was Hawa, which was, um, which was translated to Eve and my parents are very old country and they didn't want their kids growing up with a feminine last name. So he changed it to something meaningless. Well, it was meaningless until Jay-Z came along, uh, but uh, <laughs> which uh, leads to some interesting interactions in New York City. I'll, I'll say that. All right. And do you have a website? Uh, I actually don't have a website. Uh, I used to have a website, um, but uh, I, I right now I'm just content running off of Twitter. Um, cool. I feel like that uh, that provides all the interaction and information that I need. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm TT Scoff, Twitter, app.net, everywhere. And uh, you can find me at brettterpster.com. And uh, I would like to thank you, Gil, for taking the time to tell me so much about board games. It's my pleasure. And games in general. Yes. I've I, I never thought this much about games before. <laughs> I'm glad to provide the opportunity. All right. Well, thank you, and we will see everybody in a week.